Today is July the 29th, 2015, and the title of today's message is Taking Possession. Come on, say that with me. Taking Possession. Now, I worked for my father in the finance business during the summers of my teenage years. That was a joyous experience. I got to make collection calls. I heard every excuse under the sun why people couldn't make their payments. And I had the occasional uh, uh, event to join my father in and repossessing somebody's vehicle when they didn't make all their payments. Uh, you know, as you would imagine, they're not too happy about it. Uh, so he would be escorted by a policeman and you know, just a gun has a way of making people comply. I'm just saying. But I would watch him go and have to take possession of something that was rightfully his that someone else had forfeited. Well, what I, I really want to share with you guys tonight is perspective of taking possession, put possession and the method in which you do is to conquer whatever is in front of you. I'm going to say that one more time. Conquer what is in front of you. If you walk away from tonight and only remember that one phrase, that to take possession of what God has given you, you have to conquer what is in front of you. We will say absolutely mission accomplished. But we got more to add to that. Amen? Amen. We'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Natalie, while everyone is turning, I want to encourage you. Where's Natalie Muller? There you go. I want to encourage you. The one uh, prophetic word that we got tonight that you shared was absolutely on target with tonight's message and what God has given me. And you're going to see throughout how the pieces of what you shared was uh, instrumental in laying the groundwork, preparing everybody's hearts to hear what the Spirit wants to say to this church. Particularly beginning with the first part in, in Jeremiah, and I'm related back here in Deuteronomy in just a second. But God has fitted, He has formed and work together and weave the very fabric of every individual that is sitting in this room. Now, everything in me wants to say every individual in this entire world, but it just so happens that you guys are sitting in front of me, and I'm preaching to you tonight. Amen? Amen. So, when the perspective, when the microscope is put upon you, there is a specific DNA of who you are, unique to you and only you. And beginning at that ground level and moving up, God has fashioned a life for you to possess. And I can say the most valuable and the most difficult thing in my entire life is knowing how to take possession of the life that God has given me. Now, a side caveat, it is extremely difficult, if not impossible and frustrating, to take possession of a life that God has not given me. That's arrogance. That's reaching out and grabbing something that is not mine. But in every way, in order to take possession of the life that God has given you, you have to conquer what is directly in front of you. You can't lose sight of that. So beginning here in Deuteronomy 8, we read from it uh, last week and never Pastor Wade preached enough is enough. And the week or Wednesday before that, Brother Rick preached on uh, choked by life. I keep on wanting to say simplify. That's all I ever walked away with. It was beautiful. 
But in this Deuteronomy 8 passage, in the very first verse, it, it really... Actually, let's go to 16. We'll start with that one. Deuteronomy 8.16. He gave you manna to eat where? He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. I'm going to say might go well. The perspective of the two messages that we got are really summed up in this one verse. God simplified the life of the Egyptians. Now he freed them from captivity. And what a blessing that is. But imagine in the desert, you have nothing to occupy your time or be a distraction. It's a completely barren place. And it was there that they were being choked by life. Because what they were forced to do is either depend upon God or depend upon themselves. And when they depended upon themselves, they found themselves crying out the very thing that Pastor Wade preached last Sunday, and that was, God, you are not enough. In the end, they missed the end result of what God was after. And as a result, they grumbled against God, and they ended up dying in the desert because they did not have... Uh, concrete within themselves that it was for their own benefit, that it might go well with them. Come on, how many times have you been in a desert situation? Dry, it's barren. I can't feel his presence, though you're fed by manna every single day. You just don't realize what you really want is something that he will provide, but isn't right now. And that the process is to humble which means to flatten and fully exhaust, fully empty something, a container, and to test you. We have several teachers in this room. You have tests for a reason. Number one, that's to determine whether or not you're an effective teacher. Or number two, to determine if you have children that are incapable or do not desire to learn. It's a measurable element. When you stand in the desert... And God is trying to humble you. God is trying to test you. He's trying to simplify you and know that he is enough. Realize that you have to persevere so that in the end, it might go well for you. And that's accomplished through conquering what's right in front of you. Now let's go to verse 1 on that slide, Steph. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. Come on, y'all not saying there. I figured y'all could say there pretty quickly. You're already there. Deuteronomy 8.1. I'll get there too. Be careful. Come on, say be careful. To follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live. Come on, say live. And increase. Say increase. And may enter. Say enter. And possess, there we go, the land that the Lord 
promised on oath to your forefathers. So we have four distinctive elements that God is telling them to be careful to obey the commands so that these four elements are able to exist in their life. And I'm using these four elements to define what it may go well with you really is. Steph, let's go to the next slide. Live, increase, enter, and possess. We're going to leave these up for a little bit. And I just want to speak about uh, some examples of people conquering what was directly in front of them. Now, everybody in this room knows who Joshua is, right? Does anybody know how to say his name in Hebrew? Yehoshua. And his name means what? Ah, God's salvation. Salvation from Yahweh God. And when we see the first generation that is there, he is there. Am I correct? Yeah. And the spies that were sent out, 12 in all, he was one of them, along with another powerful man of God named Caleb. And when they spied upon the land... The ten cowered and they began to make excuses why it couldn't be possessed. But Caleb and Joshua stood firm in their faith and they had the hope, the faith and the trust in God to know how to live, increase, enter and possess. That was already in the depths of who they were and they set out to conquer what was right in front of them. So let's go to the first verse that'll help paint this for us. We'll go to easy worship stuff. Joshua chapter three, verse one. Say there when you are there. There. Some reason when I'm behind a pulpit, I just want to say God. In the form of God. So Joshua 3, verses 1 through 5. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from, big word, and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord your God, and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Come on, somebody say move. move. There we go. Verse four. Then you will know which way to go. Let's back up to verse three real quick. I want to reframe or restate that. When are you are to move out from your positions and follow it? Verse four. Then you will know which way to go. Since you have never been this way before, but keep a distance about a thousand yards between you and the ark, do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things among you. Before you go to war, you have to get right with God. Here we are. Joshua is on the precipice of fulfilling a promise that was made to him and his nation 40 years prior. That was unfulfilled by the first generation, watched his generation die in the desert. A new one raised up to take their place. And he's on the precipice. 
of watching it be fulfilled. And the very first thing was consecrate yourselves. Let's look into this a little bit. This is a step one of get right before you go to war. Consecrate can mean set apart, sanctify, be made holy, to dedicate. What Joshua did by giving this, them this command of consecration, he was preparing them for obedience and knowing how to be led through the Jordan, which was a river of impossibility. You know, God has a way of, not a way, he, the way that he communicates to mankind is a repetitious pattern over and over and over. The Hebrew word for that is mikra. And the means rehearsal. You practice it again and again. And his method of dealing with them is no different than the method that he deals with us. How many times have you come around the mountain, literally, again and again, that same old problem, that same old issue, that same old stinking thinking, whatever it may be, there before you, and you have to conquer what's directly in front of you? Well, the first step is that you got to get right with God. We love that Don Potter song. Why? Not because of its musical uh, astuteness, though it is pretty fantastic guitar playing, I can say that. But because it communicates the heart of God and what it takes to accomplish the will of God. Most of you ladies in here have something that you have consecrated. Now, why am I picking on the ladies? Because I'm not necessarily talking about personal holiness, though that could be the issue. Depends on your heart. You have, I don't know, maybe a brooch that your grandmother gave you, a ring, a set of china, something that you only break out for a very, very special occasion. And what you have done by setting it aside, you have declared it as holy unto Thanksgiving <laughs> or holy unto whatever. And anytime that your kids ever even think of coming close to touching that element, it is time to smack them down. Do not touch this because it's holy and you ain't. Go wash them hands and don't even think about touching it. What Joshua was commanding them to do was to come out and be separate from who they used to be. No longer be the generation that dwelled in the desert, you're on the edge of being and becoming and doing something new within your walk. In that, it just doesn't, I mean, right there, it just doesn't stop. So if I told Mario, if I told Justin, I told Wade, hey, go be holy, but didn't tell them how to become holy, it would be a disservice to them, right? Let's read a little bit further. Let's go to Joshua chapter 5 in verse 1. Now, in the interim between Joshua 3 and Joshua 5, they consecrated themselves. The priests were told to take the Ark of the Covenant, go stand inside the Jordan, and the presence of God parted the impossible and made dry land now for the second time in another location. And the entire nation of Israel, the second generation, crossed on dry land into the promise of what God was going to give them. And once they made it to the other side, the very first thing that he told them 
is mentioned right here in chapter 5 of Joshua. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. We'll push pause button right here on the teaching for tonight. Your obedience and consecration to become obedient before God in and of itself will display the glory of God and that alone will make the heavenly realms and the demonic forces tremble before you. They are defeated before you ever set foot in that place. Don't ever say to me, don't ever say to yourself or somebody else, I don't have what it takes. I'm not powerful enough. Because number one, it's not all about how strong you are. It's about how big God is and therefore how obedient are you to his design and plan. We submit ourselves to God. We resist the devil and then we expect him to flee. If you can't find the power, start with consecration and obedience and it'll get you there. Verse two. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Yeah, exactly. Now, he clarifies in the remaining ver the following verses. The second generation hadn't yet been circumcised. The first generation was circumcised as they left out of Egypt and going into the desert. But let's jump to verse eight. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were. Come on, somebody say remain. Amen. In the camp until they were healed. John 15 says, I believe over 14 times or right at 14 times, remain in me or remain. I am the vine. You are the Remain in me. Let my words remain in you. By circumcision, removing of the old man, it allowed them to then camp and remain in the presence and thereby the obedience of God and healing came after consecration and circumcision. When people walk in to the Lord and become born again, they're leaving a former way of life. And that formal way of life has been brutal. It's been hard. It leaves scars. It has done nothing but thieve or steal from them, kill whatever promises that God has designed for their life. And they've just experienced resurrection power. Their hearts have just been sanctified and circumcised. They received a new heart. You know because you've been there. But you also know that over a period of time, there are things that the presence of God has to heal in order for you to then be prepared to go make war in the heavenly realms. It's just a little bit too sensitive of a scar. And God has to fix it and form you up before you can step in the battle. Let's go to verse 9. Then the Lord said to, jo said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. So the, really the very first city that Israel came to was a removal of the Egyptian identity that they carried in the desert. We always say, 
What was the first city that they came to when they crossed the Jordan? Jericho! It's a Sunday school answer. It was really the circumcision of their hearts. And God renamed the area and the city that they first landed because that's where they got right with God before they went into war. Second Corinthians 5, verse 17. We have it on our, our walls. We've memorized it, but we'll say it again. Therefore, come on, say therefore. If anyone, say anyone, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Say gone. The new has come. Here's a quick parallel and hopefully a, a touch of a sod. The word Gilgal means rolled away. Israel just stepped through death. Water has synonymously or homiletically or hermeneutically resembled death in the word. And walked into life, into the promise of God. And the very first city that they come to is called rolled away. What was rolled away after the place of death has now brought resurrection life. Amen. So first was consecrate, second circumcise. Next one, let's go to verse 10 of Joshua 5. Commence. Commencement speeches, right? It's where you start out a new journey. You have tons of graduates sitting in chairs waiting to celebrate with sometimes absolute foolishness. But beginning a new chapter, a new event in their life. And that's exactly where the nation of Israel was. They just crossed from death into life. And now they were starting something new. Verse 10 through 12. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at rolled away on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. I, I've overlooked this for all the years that I love the Lord and read the word. The very first thing that they commence with and celebrate is the very shadow and type of what Jesus was going to do and become. That death was taken away. And death was rolled away just like that tombstone was. And what was now before them was a celebration of the Passover lamb before they ever went to war into the promised land. You want to know how to get right before you go? You consecrate, you circumcise, and then you start, you commence with the celebration of the Passover lamb. May the lamb who was slain receive his just reward. And the reward of Israel was going to be the nations and particularly that exact land that he was going to give them. The king of kings, the lamb of God deserves your obedience and he deserves your very life because his blood paid for the very land that they were about to enter into. He paid for the breath that you have in your lungs and the resurrection that you will experience if you hold on and endure until the end. Let's go to verse 11. The day after Passover. What is that day known as? Day of unleavened bread. They transition one into the other. That very day they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and 
roasted grain. It's like God just has a, an echo in the room of time. That he follows his structure, his pattern to communicate a message ages, if not for eternity to come. Unleavened bread represents bread made without yeast or a life that is committed unto him without sin. You got to get right before you go. Verse 12. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Sounds a little bit like first fruits, doesn't it? How many times have you waited too long, Miss Natalie Mollick, sharing that word to this morning or tonight? Have you waited too long sitting on the east side of the Jordan trying to determine what's to come next? Will I really have food to eat? What if this manna stops? What if it doesn't? What if it doesn't stop? What will I do with it? Your analytical mind begins to process the will of God, but it is incapable of processing God's will. Because what he desires from you is trust, grounded obedience and a conquering of what is directly in front of you. We have bumper stickers and we say all the time, Jesus is. I want to say it again. Jesus is. Lord. Is he really? Evaluate your own heart and actions when you're put in this position. When the manna stops, when yesterday's provision has come to an end. Are you in the place with your relationship with the living God that allows you then to eat the produce of the promise? Or are you bickering, grumbling and complaining why you don't have what you used to have? See, if we try to enter into the land and go to war without getting right before God, we have not yet consecrated ourselves. We haven't dealt with holiness and sin. We haven't circumcised our hearts. We haven't celebrated the Passover land. You will do nothing but obstruct the will of God from ever manifesting fully in your life. But I know that's not what your hearts really want. You want the life that God has fashioned for you. Turn to Joshua 5. Right, are we there? Verse, we'll pick up in verse 13, but before we go, before we go there, Wade's message that he preached, enough is enough. I walked away with a single phrase that has blessed me all week long. It has blessed my perspective of the past, the present, and the future. And that was the little by little. Can I tell you, sometimes, especially when it comes to parenting or any form of leadership, you want as quick of a result as you can get. I don't want to labor. I don't want to spend much time going over a point again and again and again and again. If you're at zero, and I know and expect you to be at zero, and I need you to be at a 10, I want the minimum amount of time it actually takes to get there. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, are you still so dull? He was expecting them to get it. So it's a righteous expectation to a certain point. 
But when I'm expecting something that God is not actually expecting, that's what throws me off and there's more frustration than there is Holy Ghost. So when we're looking at this little by little principle allows us to be led by God. I'm going to say it with me. Led by God. That's L-E-D, not L-E-A-D. So if I'm in the process of or watching my beautiful and magnificent wife teach our, our kids, I watch her go through the gambit of trying to take what she clearly understands up here and transmit it to what's over here. And it's like, okay, I said it one way and it didn't stick. So let me restructure it here, say it another way and it didn't stick. And what I find that she does and she really helps me with, with my girls is that she'll say, okay, we got to really break this down to some simplistic levels and we're going to teach them this one principle first. Then once they get that, they'll go to the next. This is exactly what Pastor Wade was talking about. If you're at a zero, we need you at a 10. We're going to go to one first. How about that? It's a great expectation. Get settled in the one, then we can progress forward and eventually we will reach there. But the real function, the purpose of little by little and what he was doing with the nation of Israel and the same thing that he's doing with you is that he's trying to teach you lordship. He's trying to communicate and impress upon your heart, not just your mind, that he is the one who determines the steps. And what I'm going to show you is that Joshua experienced that exact same thing and inevitably learned how to conquer what was right in front of him. Y'all ready? Y'all asleep? There was no prison ministry today, so y'all should be fully and wide awake. I don't want to see any nodding going on, man. All right, so verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Now, that takes a lot of, a lot of moxie, you know, anyway. A dude has a sword drawn in his hand. So, you on this team or what? What's the real outcome if he's not? Well, you got to engage him. You got to run a sword through him, put him to death because he's standing in the promised land. And now he's prepared to fight. Verse 14. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Well, that's a bold statement. I am now present in this place. What? What? Okay, great. That's the master of ceremonies here. I'm going to preside over the warfare. Let's go. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? What a reply. Verse 15. The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is, say it with me, holy. The place where you are standing is holy. Why did we begin with consecration? Because you have to have a foundation of holiness to then go pursue the will of God and engage in warfare. And Joshua did so. What was being prepared for Joshua was the right order, the shalom of God 
to teach him the method in which he was going to conquer. He didn't have a full plan. He just knew the next step that God puts in front of me, I'm going to do. He watched his peers, the first generation of the nation of Israel in the desert, disobey, grumble, and every little step that God was trying to lead them to next, their hearts became stiff-necked and they rebelled against God and they died in the desert. Come on, some of you in here are younger siblings. You had old, older siblings. And you had the blessing and the benefit of watching them get their butt torn up. And you gain wisdom without a spanking. Praise God. That's the exact position that Joshua was in. And now he is standing in that spot. There is no older brother to blame it on. There is no scapegoat. Now it's his turn. And he is being led by God through the little by little. Exodus 23, 23. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. You know what hit me when I read this verse? He spoke this to the first generation. So what we just read in Joshua of the commander of the Lord's armies coming to Joshua and then giving him instruction of how to overcome Jericho, the procedure and how to do this was prophesied before the first generation or as they were making it into the desert and on the way to the promised land. In my mind, it painted the picture that when that word was spoken in Exodus 23, 23, this angel was stationed at Gilgal and waiting for the, the Israelites to cross. And he'd been standing there the entire time. Because there was a promise to fulfill. There was the character and nature and fabric of God that was being interwoven into the nation of Israel. And he was not going to let himself down, though the Israelites, the first generation, let him down. That the promises of God are yes and amen and they are immovable. And when he says it, bank on it. It's going to happen. So that in the end, you may know that it, so that in the end, it may go well with you. When God promises you specifically about your function, about your call, about whatever it is that he has designed you to accomplish. Do not let your hearts grow, dwell or even have the hint of fear of being incomplete. Because just as he commanded or fore, uh, foretold that my angel will go ahead of you. And bring you into the land of the list of peoples. And that who would wipe them out? God would. God would wipe them out. But that doesn't leave you in the position of only watching and receiving a spiritual welfare check. But you have to get, do something about it. Let's go to verse 27 of Exodus 23. We'll read through 30. 
I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of their way. That was actually Wade's green van. It was the green hornet. But I will not drive them out in a single year. How many times have you personally said in your own heart or said with your mouth, why do I still struggle with this? Why is this still my nemesis? I thought I was better. I thought spending more time in the Lord, developing over whatever number of years, I should have conquered this. Well, the same answer for you is the same answer it was for them. Because God's methods are still the same. Because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. If all of a sudden we had zero conflict with our sinful nature, the overwhelming element of pride would come rushing in. It would be ravenous. You would fight more to resist exalting yourself because you couldn't relate to other people's struggles. That There's a message two and a half weeks ago that Pastor Eric, I believe, preached about adversity. Advantage through adversity. You want to know the question to why you always struggle with this? Why is this burden on my shoulders? Why can't I shake it? It's because God's trying to give you the upper hand by not letting you be devoured by the very things you're trying to conquer. Verse 30. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. There's a maturing process in the Lord that he will give you something. He will entrust it to you. But what must you do? You must prove faithful with what you've been given. We always say because we we are a missional church. I think every church should be. You're wrong if you're not. What you do here is what you're going to do there on the mission field. Your sleep habits, your eating habits, your complaining habits, your rejoicing habits, all of who you are here is going to be the same thing over there. Now, you may experience a high and a rush for the first week, maybe two, but give it three weeks and you're going to be back in your normal groove. Your circadian rhythm of your flesh, your soul and your spirit are going to be right in line with what it is here. So what God gives us, us, this church, the ability to do is the little by little that teaches us to be led by him so that we understand that we have to conquer what is directly in front of us. If you can't overcome a month of coming up short on your bills, not because of your mismanagement, but because you're doing war in the heavenly realms and you have sick children, you have medical bills, you have cars that break down, that it feels like the favor of God has evaporated from your life and you're doing circles in the desert, that you're doing everything right in consecration, circumcision, and commencement. If you cannot conquer that here today, you won't survive two days out there. 
that that 40 years that was spent in the desert, that second generation had the opportunity to watch the outcome of unbelief and it killed their parents. And they were determined it not kill them. Little by little, I drive, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. We won't let God increase us. Amen. So watch this. Turn to Joshua 16. I don't know about you guys, but I don't necessarily have anyone in my family with an inheritance waiting for me the day that they croak. None of of great and huge value outside of sentimental. My mom has wonderful treasures for me, and that's mainly memories of being a fantastic mom. Oh, exactly. But Israel was promised Canaan. They were going to dispossess the nations that were there because they, the nations that were there defiled it. They handled it, mismanaged it wrongly with wickedness. And Israel was going to step in and inherit the land that God had prepared for them. There's an inheritance laid up. Well, the same is for you and I. You know, there's an inheritance greater than just the idea of going to heaven. There's the inheritance of this entire earth being given to those who are meek. There's an inheritance of belonging to the kingdom of God that will fill this earth and we will rule and reign on this planet, a regenerated ball of dirt, just like we will be for eternity. Israel here in Joshua 16 was being divvied up the land that they had inherited now that they had gone through their conquest. So 16, let's start in verse 1. The allotment for Joseph began at the Jordan of Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, and went up from there through the desert into the hill country of Bethel. You can go back to one. The allotment for Joseph. Joseph was broken up up in two different parts. What parts were they? Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, let's skip to verse 4. So Manasseh and Ephraim, the descendants of Joseph, received their inheritance. They got it. It's theirs, right? It's completely theirs. But watch what happens to their hearts and the characteristics that they both had and demonstrated not really possessing it. In verse uh, 10, let's skip there, to there. They did not dislodge. Now speaking about uh, Manasseh. They did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Gezer. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. Now, if I'm not mistaken, God said I would completely wipe them out, right? You would drive them out. There would be nothing remaining of this people in this land. But what they came to the conclusion is that uh, we really couldn't fully conquer them, so we're just going to make them do forced labor. 
not completely God's will. Mostly, but not completely. Let's go to Joshua 17, starting verse 12. So, correction, that, that one in verse 10, that was Ephraim. This one's Manasseh. Verse 12 through 13, yet the, big word, Manassehites, were not able to occupy these towns. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. You have a a commonality between two brothers, between two nations. They grew strong, they subjected them, but they did not drive them out. Now, let me take this lens of poor Manassas, poor Ephraimites. Let me put the spotlight on you. What in your life What part of your sinful nature have you actually grown to the ability and increased enough in maturity and strength in the Lord to overcome, but you just really left it there hanging on the thread of forced labor? And the real double entendre on this is who's who's being forced? The obvious one is the Ephraimites, and Manassites are forcing the su- their subjects to do what they need to do. But I don't know about you, anytime that you've had to force something or force somebody to do it, it's usually more work for you than it is the actual subjects. Leaving elements of your sinful nature hanging around because you have not fully driven them out is actually causing you to become fatigued. It's causing you to experience forced labor. It's a burden on your back because you have not driven it out completely. And let me begin with this. Young men, men of any age at this point, if you find yourself having to wrestle but yet not fully driving out porn addictions, you are wearing yourself out And not doing the completeness of what God has asked you to do. And it will leave you in a place of not inheriting the full life that God has destined for you. You want to know what taking possession is like in a reality sense in your life, men? Won't you conquer porn before you have aspirations to go conquer the nations for God? Ladies, you're not exempt. I call what you guys deal with emotional porn. If you cannot conquer jealousy, inward bickering, judgment of each other in order to exalt your own self because you have such poor self-esteem, you will never do anything great and complete for God. If someone else's greatness and their accomplishments in the Lord makes you revile them, hate them, judge them, and cut them down and magnify their flaws. That is emotional pornography and just as wicked as a man staring at a computer screen full of lewdness. You are both equally at fault. 
conquer and drive out what is in front of you. Then you can gain the confidence before God to know you are able to take possession of what God has truly given you. Well, if we're honest, what you do in your own heart is that you grumble and you complain and blame everything else around you or why you don't have what you deserve or even what God has called you to. The inheritance and allotment that God has portioned for you. But yet you fail to do the very first thing that the nation of Israel did before they even crossed into the promises of God. And that was consecrate your own heart. Let's drive out the sinful nature. Let's drive out apathy. Let's drive out competition and measuring of ourselves by ourselves. Let's put on humility. Let's let the Lord test us. Let's let the word of God be living and active, able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our own heart. You know, that word judge in Greek means to criticize. I think when we say that verse, when I hear it in my head, it just kind of smooths right over in the church language. And it says, yes, it sits there and it says this is wrong and this is right. But when you use the word criticos or critical and it criticizes, it nitpicks, it gets down to every fine detail of the thought and attitude of your heart. That hurts. That stings. That weighs it out before God. But there's no other way to become consecrated before God unless you let the living word criticize you. You got to welcome it. You got to love it. Because if you don't, you're hating life. Hmm. Verse 14 of Joshua 17. The people of Joseph, this is Ephraim and Manasseh combined together, said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment? And one portion for an inheritance. We are numerous people. And the Lord has blessed us abundantly. I want to show some things as we go through this. Only one. If I gave, let's see, Bree, since you are just outspoken and gregarious. If I gave you... One million dollars. Is that one enough? Lord, I hope so. Well, that's kind of, you know, yeah, that's the Dr. Evil. One million dollars. One hundred million dollars. But is one enough? And that's what they brought before Joshua. Combined together. Was this one enough? But get this. What they used to justify their grievance going to Joshua was a, a cloak of fig leaves of religious stature. They said, we are numerous or numerous people and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. Doesn't this one verse speak dichotomy? Isn't it a paradoxical viewpoint? We don't have enough, but we're blessed abundantly. I don't know my left hand from a hole in the ground. What they demonstrated was a lack of perspective of what God has really given them. But there's a reason why. I want to show you. Verse 15. I love Joshua. He's just a blunt, direct guy. 
smooth and cool. Moses was, you know, he was Moses. You know who he is. But Joshua just had class to him. I loved him. He said, if you are so numerous, right there, I just want to say, in your face. Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves. There in the land of, I'm sorry, who? Parasites and Rephaites. Weren't these the very nations that we read earlier in Exodus that God would dispossess and wipe them out? Joshua saw through their smoke screen the whole time. So for this one, he just told them straight up in their face. You need to do work, son. Do the work. Don't sit here and come and complain to me that you don't have enough inheritance. You don't have enough land to do what you want to do. But yet there's a large portion of it you haven't even began to touch. And there's a reason why. Let's go to 16. So the people of Joseph replied, the hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live there, live in the plain, have iron chariots, both those in Bethshan and its settlements and those in the valley of Jezreel. Their heart just leaped out of their mouth. Their true motives just popped out. It's not that they didn't have enough inheritance. It's that they were cowards. They didn't do completely what God told them to do. The very people that God said, I'm going to drive out, I'm going to wipe out. Yeah, that's kind of the real reason why we hadn't gone and conquered that land. But watch how Joseph, uh, before we do, get a perspective. Right? Sometimes a map just does us justice. Seth, you could put that map up. Think about the land of Israel. Well, if you just consider what is west of the Jordan River, that's that thin blue line between the Dead Sea on the bottom and the Sea of Galilee at the top. You look at West Manasseh and Ephraim. Combined together, the only other allotment that is larger is Judah. So they have more land than the other one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine other tribes. Definitely in the top three. You know what I'm talking about. They had more land than nine other sibling tribes. And yet they said, we don't have enough. What comes out of your mouth? Whenever really it's cowardice and it's fear of doing what God has called you to do. You want an easy way out. You just want God to expand the territory a little bit more. Just give me, give me some more, give me a different ministry to go do. Yeah, I, I tried this and the Lord just led me somewhere else. No, your fear and your cowardice led you somewhere else. Don't be afraid to conquer what is in front of you. Because if you let fear dominate, it will cause you to cloak yourself with the same religious fig leaf that these two tribes did and will blame other people for not having what you need. Let's go back to the word. Verse 17, Joshua 17, 17. You know, 
In verse 16, let's go back to that real quick before I move on. Their reply in the beginning was the hill country is not enough. But what really came out of the heart was it's not that they, they were lacking blessings. It's that they didn't have enough courage. The phrase that God said to Joshua in the first chapter, I think it's over five times. Rakazakamats. Be strong and courageous. God said it so many times because that's exactly what he needed to be. And he's saying the same thing to you tonight. What he is trying to resound and echo through the depths of your soul is that if you want what God has for you, you have to simplify. You have to clarify. You have to be content with what's right in front of you, and then you got to conquer with what's right in front of you. You want to take possession of God's will for your life? This is how you do it. This is the culture of this church because it's the culture of God's word and his character. Verse 17. Joshua was a well-balanced man. He responds with this. Wouldn't have been my response, but he responded with this. But Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are numerous and very powerful. He took that you are. And he spoke life to them. I would say they're not powerful because they didn't completely do what God told them to do. They cowered to the very nations that God said that he would wipe out. They weren't conquering what was right in front of them. But he spoke life to them. He said, you are very powerful. You will have not only one allotment, but the forest hill country as well. He brought revelation to them of how they could increase. He expanded their perspective of the inheritance. Clear it, he said, and its farthest limits will be yours. Come on, how many times have we pulled up short of inheriting what God has promised because we shied away from doing warfare with what scared us the most? But if we go the opposite direction and we take upon that yoke of rock, Kazakh, Hamas, we can go to the farthest limits of what God has designed and fashioned for us. We limit ourselves is the true perspective. Not God, not anybody else. Clear it. And its furthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have iron chariots and though they are strong, you can drive them out. Come on, this is a pastor's heart as a leader of the nation of Israel. You can drive them out. Don't tell me you can't. Don't tell God you can't of the sinful nature that you're battling, of the obstacle that's in front of you. You can Because God made it clear from the very beginning, it was he that was going to do it. Therefore, he is in you, and thereby, he can, and you can. Let's not give up on God. Let's hold fast to the promises that he's given us. But sometimes, we need the Romanian proverb just to smack us. A kick in the butt is a step forward. 
And that's what we're getting tonight. Let's go to Joshua 18. Start in verse 3. Only verse 3, in fact. So Joshua said to the Israelites, how long will you wait? Come on, how long will you wait? This is your word, girl. Before you begin to take possession of the land. She's going to sit there and just look at it. This is what I mean by spiritual welfare check. You know, God's grace and his welfare is really there to aid you in a transition to get to the point where you're actually taking possession of something. You got to earn that paycheck. How long are you going to wait? How long are you going to sit there and blame other people and blame God for an unfulfilled promise? Even though you're sitting square on it. Missing what God has given you, blaming other people. How long will you wait to begin? To take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers has given you. Come on, what we need a revelation of tonight is, first of all, what has he given us? Is it worth fighting for? Absolutely. And then what do we need to get off of in order to take possession of it? Let's not be armchair quarterbacks. Let's not ride the coattails of somebody else's passion and vision and call. But let's take possession of what God has called us to. And uniformly, what will happen in this church is that one man's call will inspire, invigorate, and breathe life into another man's call. And it will be a body that is respirating in and out of God's presence, exhaling what doesn't belong and inhaling what does, bringing encouragement, bringing life. Aren't you blessed when other members of the body fully function in what God has called them to? That the anointing of God flows through them. It feeds your soul. It sets you on right track, but also gives you the hope and the inspiration to go do what you've been called to do. Competition does just the opposite. It squashes, it demeans, it brings division and disunity. (coughs) And the power and presence of God flees from the building because the spirit of God is grieved by the contention with his truth. Let's let the love of God flow for one another in this place. Let's let it flow for him. Let's desire and hunger and thirst for others to excel and achieve what God has accomplished by standing on our backs as they do it. Then we'll inherit what God has given us. We're going to conquer what God has put in front of us. But there's an end goal to the means. There's a reason why. It didn't begin with you. It didn't begin even with that generation that entered the promised land. It began further back than that. Let's go to Genesis 15, verse 7 through 11. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to what? Take possession of it. He was speaking to Abram. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the... I'm sorry, verse 8. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? 
You know you are children of Abraham because you have the same kind of faith that he did. And don't you say this very thing when we're talking about taking possession and conquering what's in front of you? Yes, Lord, I believe. Yes and amen. How? I'm lost. (laughs) What do I do? He's in the same position. But watch how it progresses. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. All those are symbolic of the type of sacrifices that we make that we don't have time for tonight. Verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 10. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. We sacrifice unto the Lord. That's the first step. That's consecration. Verse 11. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. What is the key to obtaining and taking possession of God's promises for you? Let's consecrate and then conquer. That is the very first practical thing that he got or told Abraham to do. How in the world is chasing away vultures and ravens? going to teach me how to possess a land because that's exactly the same thing you got to do it just gets a lot bigger and a lot more fierce god trained up pastors for israel by teaching them with the little by little he taught david how to be a fierce pastor of the nation of israel and a king of israel by first allowing him to lead real sheep and fighting lions and bears with a slingshot in his bare hands What's before you now that God is asking you to conquer that you're avoiding? And in the long term, you're avoiding the ability to conquer what's in the future. Let's possess what God has given us by possessing what's in front of us now. Joshua 21, verse 43 through 45. So what we just read was a promise made to Abraham that in all accounts was the exact procedure that he then then in Joshua led the second generation into the promised land. But this was the reason why. 43 through 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers. And who would that be? Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And they took possession of it. And settled there. For future note, this has a a step-by-step process that leads you through what to do with the promises that God gives you. Just a side nugget for further study if you want to do it. Verse 44. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers, Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. And that's a double entendre as well. Every one of the promises and every one in the nation of Israel. Every promise was fulfilled because they did it God's 
way. They conquered what was in front of them. Let's go to that layout of Deuteronomy 8.1 with the side-by-side of Joshua 17. Remember we've covered in 8.1 so that it will go well with you? When we compare Joshua 17 to it and what we covered, the you are, you are a numerous people, you are very strong. That's life that causes us to live. The as well, it was God increasing, but not necessarily increasing the allotment of inheritance, but increasing their revelation of what they had already been giving. That's how it goes well with you. To clear it. That's how they entered into what God had promised them. And literally this word in Hebrew in Deuteronomy 8.1 means to harvest, to gather, to cut down and bring in. Do the work, clear what is an obstruction and what you fear lies in the valleys, the parasites and the Hittites. Lastly, so that it will go well with you, we've got to complete the task. You have to drive them out in order to possess. They cannot coexist. Fear cannot coexist with faith. They're opposed to one another. It's oil and water. So what we're going to do is that when we stand up, when we pray, we're going to take the solemn charge that we're going to hold each other accountable and hold ourselves accountable to not wait any longer to take possession of what God has given us. But I'm asking you that you take the steps that I laid out for you in this message, go through them to find out what God has really promised you. Begin with all those elements. Steph, you go through that list that I put down that has get right before you go. Little by little allows the Lord to lead you and conquer what is in front of you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand on our feet.